Today, we will talk and think about a very, a very uh, familiar topic to all of us. That's a sermon. Today's sermon is a sermon about sermons. Sermon is what we hear and talk about every week, especially as a pro -restance. Sermon is a centerpiece of our Sunday worship service, while Roman Catholics, they major on Eucharist or Communion. When sermon is good, we feel worship was good. When sermon is bad, we feel worship is a waste. That's why Protestant pastors spend an average of a minimum two days a week preparing Sunday sermons. Uh, one day I remember uh, a one-Sunday fellowship, a youth asked me, Pastor Paul, what do you do during the week? And the first thought came to my mind was, was my sermon today that bad? Megachurch pastors, they hire a sermon prep team with several pay staff. Whether it's a pastor of a large church or a small church, we all agree, preaching matters. Now, what is the first sermon that you remember? What is the first sermon or one of the early sermons that made an impact on your life? By the way, today, I want everyone to share your first or best sermon experience with each other during the breakout fellowship, okay? So that's the question that I want everybody to sort of share and encourage. So what makes a, a sermon good and effective? What makes us feel some sermons short while other sermons are long? Today, we will hear and reflect on the first sermon in the book of Acts. This sermon is a very important because it was not only the first Christian sermon in history, but also it, is the, uh, it became the foundational sermon, which became a platform for other sermons in the New Testament. Luke recorded 28 speeches and the 15 sermons in the book of Acts. For the ancient people who lived in the oral culture, speech was a common device to tell an important historical event, such as a Socrates' apology or Pericles' funeral oration. Even in the modern time, we associate a great event with a great speeches. Let me tell you the speaker and speech, and you tell me if you, the historical event related to. President Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg speech address. Civil, uh, what is that, Civil War? Yes. What about the uh, uh, Winston Churchill's Never Surrender? Uh, speech, radio speech, the World War II or Battle of Britain? What about uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream? Yes, civil rights movement in 1960s. I feel actually sad that in this pandemic we haven't heard and uh, we don't hear and I'm afraid we will not hear on any inspiring message from White House and our political leadership. Now, as I'm going to read the first Christian sermon in history in Acts chapter 2, I want us to hear it as if we are in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It's only 523 words, and I want you to have a first impression 
And after that, we'll go and then find the one makes this sermon very special and what we need to learn. So are you ready? I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Then the Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunken, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what happened. Oh, this is what was spoken by Prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servant, both man and woman, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, the moon to the blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelite, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you, by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of a wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelite, I can tell you confidently that Patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of a resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourself from this corrupt generation. 
Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Through the first sermon of Peter, I want us to learn four essential, four essential factors of a faithful sermon. Four essential factors of a faithful sermon. And as we learn the four factors of God's proclamation, I pray that we all examine our hearts and attitude in receiving God's message and also uh, responding to his word. The first and foremost factor of a faithful sermon is a courage. Courage to speak. This is the first time we see Peter preaching. And where and when was a Peter preaching in Acts 2? Peter was preaching in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of the three major religious festivals for Jewish people. Passover, Day of Atonement, and Pentecost. Pentecost means Pentes literally means 50 in Greek. Pentecost means 50 days after Passover. They celebrate the harvest and God's goodness. That means Peter today preached his first sermon less than two months in the very place where Jesus was condemned and crucified. The Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers and everyone who involved in torturing and killing Jesus was still walking around. Nothing changed circumstantially. It was a still dangerous place to be. As we learned from Matthew 27 on our Easter Sunday, Jewish leaders fabricated a fake news about resurrection as a tomb robbery and resolved to seek and destroy anyone who speak about resurrection of Jesus. That's why Jesus has to remind the disciples, specifically in Acts 1-4, that do not leave Jerusalem. And Peter and other disciples, they wanted to return to Galilee, their home for safety and comfort. And Jerusalem was a place of fear and shame, a place where they were traumatized. Yet they obeyed in staying in Jerusalem for extra 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven. By the way, what did they do for 10 days? They didn't leave the house because of their fear. They just stayed together and prayed in the upper room of John Mark's house. And then on the day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit descended on every one of 120 disciples, and they all began to speak foreign languages supernaturally. And then people were shocked, and some were skeptical. Now, I want you to remember this. Peter was not preaching today to a warm, welcoming audience, but a hostile, mocking antagonist who are accusing him and his friends of a drunkenness. Peter was not preaching at the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem with a respect and a reception. Peter was preaching in open air. And people who thought they were drunken and making fun of them. You know, when you preach the first sermon, most preachers have difficulties, even with a kind, receptive audience. I remember Rick Warren, the pastor of a, a Saddleback Community Church, uh, telling uh, the, the story of his first sermon. Uh, Rick Warren preached his first sermon at the age of 15 
at Tiburon Baptist Church, Mill Valley, California. His father was a director of a Baptist bookstore at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, which is my alma mater. It was Sunday evening, and Tiburon Baptist Church was where the most uh, uh, seminary professors attended. And Baptist churches, uh, some of them even today, have a tradition of uh, inviting youth, high schoolers to preach in Sunday evening or Wednesday as a way to encourage young people to find their pastoral calling. So there, 15 years old, a high school senior was preaching as a first sermon before seasoned professors and uh, theologians and biblical scholars. And he was so nervous that Rick Warren spoke fast and finished the sermon in 14 minutes. He's supposed to speak for 20 minutes, but he finished in 14 minutes. And when he finished, the organist was still taking a break and wasn't ready for transition. And the pastor has to hurry back to the pulpit and then spoke another five minutes for smooth you know, ending. And then finally worship ended and every faculty came and they gave a kind compliment to Rick Warren. And Rick Warren said he felt so small, he just wanted to disappear. Today, Peter was not preaching. His, Peter was preaching his first sermon, impromptu. When he got up this morning on Pentecost Day, he didn't expect to preach. He didn't know what to expect. He just thought about, you know, it's just a festival day. He was about to pray. I mean, he's just praying. And all of a sudden, everything happened. And without manuscript, you don't see me, but I have a manuscript in front of me. And he started preaching. Some might say, but Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's right. Holy Spirit gave us a preach, a courage to speak for Jesus. But having courage does not mean there was no fear in Peter. Being filled with the Holy Spirit does not mean Holy Spirit banquishes fear, all fear in our heart. But you have to listen. Holy Spirit rather builds a faith above fear. Peter had a, that means that Peter had a courage of the Holy Spirit more than fear. We shouldn't overlook the important fact that courage, once again, is not absence of a fear, but advance against the fear. FD, FDR, you know, Franklin, uh, Franklin Roosevelt said it right. Courage is not absence of fear, but rather assessment that something else is more important than fear. That's what the Holy Spirit does. In spite of fear, Holy Spirit helps us to focus on something more important than fear. That is Jesus Christ. And that is some of us need right now in this pandemic, in all kinds of worries and anxieties of a job loss and job security and business you know, decline and then, you know, whatever, even health concerns, we have to focus on Jesus. That's the courage. And then I once, once again, I, want, I, I don't want us to read today's story from our vantage point that we already know the successful outcome of today's sermon. And we know that Peter, after this, he launched a successful preaching career. When Peter preached today's sermon, his first sermon, he didn't know whether he will preach again. 
He didn't know whether his first sermon would be the last sermon. Because all who killed Jesus is still around, you know, around the city. From this, I take an important cue, which is my preaching practice and principle. You know, when I preach, I preach as if this is my last sermon. Even when I preach a, series, a sermon series, I preach each sermon at a time with all of my heart, as if I will not return again. Yes, I make a plan for sermons, but also I lay down my plan at the work of the Holy, at the work of the Holy Spirit each Sunday. Now, how about us? How about you? Do you hear God's word as desperately and humbly as I preach? Do you really seek God every Sunday? That Lord, give me the words to live this week victoriously and faithfully. The second factor of a faithful sermon is a preaching is not only courage, but also preaching is not a solo act, but preacher is always with a company of preachers. Biblical preachers, they are always in the company of preachers. Peter did not stand alone. As he stood, other disciples stood. And as he stands and speaks, Israel's prophets are echoing in his word. It is very dangerous. One commentator, one well-known preacher said is life-draining deception to believe the priest, you know, preacher to believe that uh, he preaches alone. Of course, one, one voice speaks in the preaching, yet at every moment, at every given moment, when a preacher speaks, many preachers past and present are speaking. The preacher is always in the company of a preacher. And then let me illustrate this with a well-known Eastern Orthodox holy painting or iconography. So would you, in this painting, the person who is sitting on the chair is named John Chrysostom. Chrysostom. S is missing. Chrysostom. Chrysostom was an archbishop of Constantinople, a.k.a. a golden tongue or golden mouth, because he was a powerful uh, preacher. And uh, the, I don't know you see the picture clearly, but uh, there is a people, group of people on, your, on the right and receiving his word. And it's like a living water that quenching the deepest thirst of their soul. But do you know who is standing behind him? It's a Paul, Apostle Paul. Because when he was preaching in Paul's letter, actually he was known for the best you know, expositor of Apostle Paul's letter. He wasn't preaching alone. The spirit of Paul was helping him to understand. This is a notion of a preaching among early church fathers, that you don't preach your own idea or even your interpretation of scripture. You preach with the apostolic you know, authority and the presence of past preachers. Now, who was a Paul's great, uh, Peter's great company today? Peter quoted uh, two past preachers of Israel. One is a ninth century prophet named Joel. The other one is a King David. First, Quoting in Joel chapter 3, verse 28 to 32, 
Peter explained to the crowd that they just witnessed the fulfillment of God's promise of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He said in the last days, God said he will pour his Spirit, Holy Spirit, in all people. What Peter was emphasizing here is this. It's not that a manner in which the Holy Spirit came to us, but to whom God sent the Holy Spirit. The main difference between the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this. Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came to people selectively few and temporarily. In the New Testament, Holy Spirit comes to everyone universally. And that's why Paul said, I mean, Peter said, and quoting Joel, that in, in the last days, God will pour his spirit in all people. In Greek text, actually, it's all flesh. The King James translation is a little better in here. God pour his spirit to all flesh. Not just prophets and rabbis, but even sons and daughters would experience outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not just the wealth, even slaves know the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Not just men, but also women. That's why later Paul said in the 1 Corinthians 12, 13, By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of a one Spirit. God outpoured Holy Spirit, all people, permanently and indiscriminately. You know that I, I want to really emphasize the outpouring, the word outpouring. You know what outpouring actually means? It means outrageous, outrageous gift. Just to make a point, do you know last Sunday we had an outrageous experience in world history or modern, you know, modern history that was for the first time ever the price of oil was a negative $35 per barrel. I'm from Venezuela, so I know I'm a little bit sensitive about the oil price. You know, negative $35. Do you know what that means? You don't pay to bring the, uh, get the oil. You get paid to get the oil. It's like you going to gas, gas pump and instead of paying what, whatever dollar 20 for gallon, they pay you to put the, you know, Put the put the put the gas in your uh, gas in your car. That is uh, never happened before. It's uh, outrageous. I wish I had a big uh, oil tank because I would make a lot of money on that day. They pay me thirty five dollar per barrel. That's the meaning of uh, outpouring. Outrageous, gracious, over, over. Willie Jennings is a very important. African-American theologian for all of us, not just, you know, for a few people, but all of us. And he commented on the importance of outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this way. The famous Joel's passage noted here could never be fully captured with our usual conception of a modern egalitarianism. It proclaims a new world order energized by the movement of the Holy Spirit, between would-be masters and would-be slaves. These slaves, men and women, prophesy. God speaks through them, and they are to obey. 
because they speak from God and speak for God. This new, new world order begins with the collapse of an old world order. Do you get this? Do you get this? Coming of the Holy Spirit means the end of all man-made religions, including Christendom. Yeah, sometimes we think of Christianity is another religion. Coming of the Holy Spirit means the beginning of a new radical relationship with God. That means the radical community of God's people, church. Because the Holy Spirit indiscriminately indwells in each one of us, and each one of us must pay attention to each one of us speaking, because we are all speaking from God, of God, for God. That's the that, that's the foundation. That's the basis of a forest as a house church ministry. Why house church is important? Jesus said very clearly, two or three gather together in my name, he will be here, and the Holy Spirit will speak through each one of us. Forests, or every church, should be church of shepherds and pastors. So once again, I want, to, I want you to know my intent towards you, my pastoral calling, is to make everyone in our church to be a shepherd to other people. My official title in this church is a lead pastor. I didn't choose the title. Somehow at the beginning of our worship, somebody gave me the title and without knowing it, I just took it. You know, maybe that's the new word for the senior pastor, but I like the lead pastor better than the senior pastor. Because oftentimes senior pastor means you're the only pastor. Whereas a lead pastor means there are a lot of other pastors so I'm not the only pastor. I'm just the first pastor. I expect there are more pastors. Full-time, part-time, paid or non-paid, doesn't matter. If we really become a church of God, we will be church of our pastors. We will be in the company and community of our pastors and preachers. Third essential factor of a faithful sermon is a Christ-centered. Christ-centered. What Peter preached here. Today, in fact, is a nothing but a recap of a Christ teaching and preaching. The second past preacher or prophet Peter cited here today was a King David and his messianic prophecy in Psalm 16 and 110. By the way, Psalm 110 was a favorite text for early church fathers, one of the most popular psalms for early church fathers. And uh, have you wondered, whenever you read, you read a, a verse like Acts chapter 1, 3, that when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection over a period of 40 days and spoke about kingdom of God, that how come disciples, they never recorded Jesus' you know, teaching? You know, when Jesus taught to these two people, two disciples on road to Emmaus, all starting from Old Testament to now, how come they didn't write the, you know, the biblical Old Testament theology of Jesus? That would be the really essence, you know, with that, we don't have to read even Old Testament, right? You know, as I was reflecting on and studying on this passage, it dawned on me finally why disciples did not record the teachings of Jesus. Because their preaching was based on Jesus' teaching. Peter preached simply what Jesus already preached. Compare Peter's quote today, Acts 2, especially verse 34 and 35, to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22. Let me read Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 22. 
While Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? Son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it that David speaking by the Spirit calling him Lord? For he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then Peter calls him the Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Peter connected Psalm 110 to previous Psalm 16, the prophecy of a resurrection to the person of a risen Christ, the true Messiah. When David spoke of a resurrection in Psalm 16, Peter pointed out he was not speaking about his own resurrection. His dad and his tomb is here in Jerusalem, but he was speaking about resurrection of a Davidic descendant. The empty tomb was that of Jesus. David was speaking of Jesus in Psalm 16. And the Psalm 16 already prophesying the necessity of a death of a Messiah and his resurrection. So therefore, Jesus was not mere, mere descendant of David, but he is a risen son of God, the Messiah. David was talking nothing but a divine identity of a Messiah. So Peter's court of Psalm 16 and 110, what, so once again, was not from his original reading of the scripture. It came from Jesus' teaching, which Peter finally remembers and recognizes importance, and now impromptu is coming out. So Peter's first sermon revealed that disciples did not preach on their own, but on the foundation of Christ's teaching. And that's why I no longer wonder and question why disciples did not record the biblical teaching of Jesus in detail. Their preaching reveals Jesus' teaching. Once again, later when Peter, people responded to Peter, what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Where did they get this? Where did Peter get the language of a baptism? Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Make a disciple of all nations and by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All the preaching, theological languages of Peter was from Jesus. You know, early church fathers, they called it apostolic teaching or apostolic authority. Next to Jesus, they, I mean, they really, they equated Jesus' teaching with the apostles' teaching. So preaching should be Christ-centered. Now, let me share my, sermon, my first sermon experiences. Uh, I, I want to share the three sermon experiences. First, my, I remember... My first sermon experience, literally first sermon experience, was as a child. Christmas sermon when I was a little. And the message was that God gave us his son as his gifts. And then, and then after that, the church gave all the gifts of pencils and notebooks. And usually back then, only the smart students received those gifts. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that smart yet. And I received all those gifts and I was really happy. So I remember the Christmas you know, sermon. And by the way, I really appreciate and we should all recognize the important work of our children, director, and teachers. You know, Rita and Reba and all teachers do because they, they laid out the foundation for children. 
Now, second sermon experience is one that I heard in Buenos Aires when I was uh, 15 and an immigrant in Latin America. And uh, I was much older, and now, you know, I have a little bit about my own thinking. And then pastor preached. I attended the church one month, and the pastor preached basically how we're supposed to love God. And it was boring, predictable, very demanding. You know, my uh, reference point was my Buddhist you know, monks, my abbot in Buddhist temple that we used to attend. He was very witty. He had a lot of interesting stories. This pastor caught a lot of you know, big names, but nothing really went through my mind or heart. It was a torture. That was my second sermon experience. And then I, then I met my pastor, Don Kim, a.k.a. the best pastor in the world, the pastor that I tried to follow, and the pastor that one day I will see in heaven, and when you see him, please tell him how I have been. He is my inspiration to be a good pastor. And uh, his sermon, my pastor, his sermon was not, he wasn't eloquent at all. And uh, many times he connected his sermon to his favorite, oh, his favorite uh, uh, story in the Bible is a parable of the prodigal son. And anytime he could, he connected the, you know, that point, uh, message to the uh, story of a prodigal son. And all of a sudden is a rehashing of the prodigal son that you all learn in Cornerstone Bible study. So I feel like, uh, you know, uh, I'm hearing uh, two sermons once again, many times. So his sermon overall was boring, also predictable. But you know, one difference it was not demanding. Rather, it was a demonstrating how much God loves us. So from his sermon, one thing I learned is this. There are two kinds of Christian sermons very religious sermons that tell us the do's and don'ts. And the other sermon is my, like my pastor sermon that reveals God's love. It just tells us how much God loves us. You know, and the interesting thing, I find out what I need the most is not a instruction or information about how to love God, but inspiration, how much God loved me. Because my problem is a motivation. My problem is not a lack of knowledge. I know what to do. But I don't have a motivation. I don't have a, you know, power to obey God. Obeying God only comes from God's love. So, that's the my sermon experience. So for me, preaching simply means preaching about love of God. If you remember one thing from my preaching, I hope you know, you remember how much God loved us. It's not about what we should do or we shouldn't do. More than anything, it is about God's super abundant love for us. Let me move on to the final factor of a faithful sermon. That is a challenging the audience to commit to God. Call to audience to change and commit to God. Sermon without this challenge. It's like offering a meal without utensils. Sermon means summon, summoning. 
Sermon is a, literally means a discourse, but it's not just a talk. It's a talk that calls everyone to respond. And the, when Peter finished, verse 37, people heard this sermon. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brother, what shall we do? The expression cut to the heart was a rare expression, which the Homer and the classical Greek writers used to describe a horse hoping, hoping on the ground. You know, that war horse, you know, kind of hoping on the ground. When people heard Peter's first sermon, they had an earthquake in their heart. They were convicted and they recognized their crisis before God. Obviously, they murdered the Messiah and crucified the Son of God. On that note, Peter called them to repent and be baptized. And then they will receive the forgiveness of sin with the gift of the permanent Holy Spirit. Now, that's how it goes. We convict the people. We tell people what, how much God loves us. And then we do what to, we, we tell people what to do. Okay. Now, this is a time for me to help you to understand why we have a worship, order of a worship service as it is. Why, you know, why do you think we place the announcement at the end of a worship service instead of at the beginning? Most churches that I've been to, they always put the announcement at the beginning. Because I understand, actually, I attended a seminar on the uh, worship and they say, they want, they want to end the worship on high note. After pastor's sermon and the great you know, song of dedication on the high note, pastor wants to come and go to the world and conquer the world with the love of Christ. And then, you know, that's how you end. You know. But our order of worship is a kind of anticlimactic. After dedication song, we say, oh, it's not over. Sit down. We have an announcement. You need to listen this carefully. Where do you think, you know, we got this kind of anticlimactic order of worship? Let me tell you today clearly. I learned this order of worship from Martin Luther, the German reformer. Luther, his Sunday preaching divided into two parts. First part is called the exegesis. Second part is exhortation. Exegesis or exposition is a, exegesis is a, it reveals a Luther's uh, a cerebral part of a, uh, you know, uh, a ministry, Dr. Martin, Professor Martin Luther, professor of Wittenberg University. So it was, a, it was a literally a biblical exegesis, sometime go into the biblical languages. It's a scholarly. That's the, he did it for about 40, 50 minutes of that. And then second part of the sermon comes. That's called the exhortation. Exhortation shows Martin Luther's common pastoral care. Actually, I call it care, but it's, it's a really nothing but a, a, a very, very emotional rebuking. And that's where Luther's blue collar comes out. You know, Luther was a son of a, a miner, and, uh, you know, miner is rough people. So his language is not uh, clean or sanitized like a other pastors like a Calvin or Melanchthon. So when Luther gave his honest you know, challenge to his congregation, he called them many animals' names, including German pigs. What do you think? 
if your pastor calls you some animal names. You Dallas pigs, listen to God and obey God. You're so fat, you're, so, you're spiritually lazy like a pig. How would you feel? Well, that's how Luther preached. I liked it. You know, it kind of rationalized my foul mouth. Well, that's a different story. But so Luther, he preached Bible and he also exhorted people. And that's why we give an announcement after the church, after the sermon. So don't take our announcement as some kind of a nuisance commercials. It is our commitment to God's call of love. So take, you know, if you love the church, pay attention to announcement and read announcement carefully because this is our corporate commitment to follow God. Dear brothers and sisters, I pray that you will really hear God's heart every day, every Sunday. And let's pray.